0: Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm excited today to be joined by Sudhir Krishnaswamy, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Barnes & Noble Education Digital Student Solutions. Sudhir, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here, and it's good to meet you as well. Absolutely. And you're
0: working in an interesting space, focusing on writing help. That's going to be the main Focus of our conversation today: Writing help in light of the awakenings around generative AI and ChatGPT. Lots of stuff going on in your world about that. Before we dig in, there we always like to start with our guests' origin stories. You can catch us up a little bit on how you got to this point in your professional life.
1: How would you get to this point in your career? Well, I grew up in India and was educated there. I actually have a degree in mechanical engineering, believe it or not, and it was plodding through that in my engineering years, and it was kind of boring, no offense to any mechanical engineers out there. But somewhere around the third or fourth year, I discovered a computer language, and that really fascinated me. It was challenging, it was puzzling, you were able to do things with it and actually produce something that was, you know, an embodiment of your thoughts. And so all of that just, you know, swept me away, I guess. After I got out of engineering, I actually joined a computer school where I wrote a program to teach Turbo Pascal. Very shortly after that, I came over to the U.S. and joined a company in the college ticketing space that we were serving event tickets for NCAA schools primarily. So that was my first intersect, I guess, with educational institutions. So I joined there as a junior programmer and rose up to be the CTO. Shortly after that, I moved on to another side of ticketing. Actually went back to India briefly where I learned how to start up a whole company and then came right back to the U.S. Where I joined, again, somehow I seem to be drawn into education over and over again. I joined this children's education company in the gaming space Mm. called Mm -hmm. Jumpstart and Math Blaster. Some of you might be familiar with these. So I became the CTO there. And that was my first exposure to trying to teach education at scale. You have all these kids coming to play games ostensibly. And our mission was to teach them a bit as they did that. And that's a very tricky proposition. You know, the intents diverge to some extent. Yeah,
0: I've heard it described uh, as stealth learning. The learning sticks up on you while you're being entertained. It's also edutainment.
1: Absolutely, I mean, it's kind of where you learn things like gamification, which then gets overused in various other places. But that was true gamification. The intent there was to, again, you know, Educate. Not a trivial thing to do, especially at scale. There are, like I said, lots of divergent interests there as to people that land at your sites and what they really want to do versus learn. So that was that. And then I very shortly after that came into this company called Student Brands, which now I'm also the CEO of. And mm-hmm. Student Brands is in the writing help space. I see. And the way we did that back then was simply take a huge body of student essays and use them as reference material for folks that would come to our sites. And in order to prevent the inevitable cheating problem, we would submit all these essays into an anti plagiarism tool that was used by universities. And so it it works really well in that model, but it's still a very static way of reference. It keeps down all the negative stuff. It imparts as much positivity to the writing help experience as you possibly can. Right. But it's very static. As a researcher, you have to go in there and read a lot before you can start writing on your own. So that's when the idea of using technology to solve this problem at scale again. again, you have a whole bunch of people showing up at scale. Some of them just want to look at the thing they came in for and leave. And we, on the other hand, being an education company, want to teach them something. Yeah. And
0: actually, just to pause there for a moment on the topic of writing help, which I think is the right one for us to be digging into here. Can you describe at a high level what that is and what types of
1: services folks are looking for when they're asking for writing help? Sure. I think writing help is a collection of services across the space that if you want to distill it down to something very specific will be, I need to teach you how to be a good writer or a better writer. And doing that with technology has many faces to it. You could walk through a full coaching experience. You could give access to reference materials, either piecemeal or in in its entirety, and say, "Look at this, and write like this," which is an example based approach that we were taking at Student Brands. Or you could do some of the you know the other side of it, which is not really writing help the way we look at it, which is sort of giving away or do it for you. And we shy away from that, you know, right. almost allergic to that. Because I've heard that
0: one of the most effective tools to learn writing is to see lots of models of what you might have written and then be asked to write your own thing. And by seeing a lot of different examples, you start to create your own model, which then
1: helps you become a better writer. Yeah, I think that's kind of how we learn. We watch you know, and we understand and assimilate and then internalize and synthesize across a bunch of examples. And then we sort of emit the creative thing that is our own. Right. And it's to some extent derivative. And if you're going to be uncharitable about it, that's how you should look at it. But I think if you view that as part of the human experience of learning, that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. And it is in light of that thinking that, you know, let's see a lot of stuff that we want to approach and then add our own creativity to it. Mm -hmm. So that was the student brand's model for a very long time. And around 2017 or so, we started to think in terms of how do we do this dynamically? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to have 6 million essays on a site that you can learn from, but that's a problem of scale. You as an individual user are showing up not for 6 million things. (laughs) You're showing up for you know, maybe five to 10 things that you want to consume and you want those five or 10 things. And maybe you don't want to read the whole thing. Maybe you're stuck at the essay prompt. Maybe, you know, you need that next step and then you'll write on your own a little bit and then you need a little more reference. So how do you do that? Big problem, first of all, is how do I show you those six out of a million Mm -hmm. that you're landing on? How do I surface that intent to you? First, at Google, Because you're going to be searching at Google not coming directly to our sites. And then how does Google understand that's representative of your search interest? And then once you land on our page, how do we ensure that that is at least mildly representative of what you came looking for? And then perhaps we can let you go in deeper by showing you affiliated concepts and essays and Mm -hmm. things like that, that then encourage you to explore a little more. And this is where to us the learning starts. Right. Is there a website people could go to 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 see the type of stuff that you're working on? Studymode.com is representative of quite a few things that we'll be talking about, not the least of which is the writing tool itself.
0: And that's where I wanted to go next is designing a writing tool. You were probably ahead of the thinking that the rest of us were thrust into towards the end of last year when ChatGPT became more available to everyone, you know, folks who were in software development, thinking about e-learning, thinking about assessing writing competencies and designing products to help people get better. AI was certainly something you were thinking about prior to this generation of large language models hitting the market. But now that this stuff is out there, I'm curious what it's like to think about designing these products and thinking about what you might leverage and where we are in terms of the accessibility of some of this technology and how quickly it's developing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we are ahead, luckily. We face this problem of scale, as I said. How do you show this stuff in a pertinent way to a user that's come to potentially consume a little or a lot? And how do you drive them down that learning funnel? Yeah, And so that happened a long time ago, about six plus years ago now. So we tried a bunch of stuff in the traditional sense of slicing and dicing large data sets like standard business intelligence techniques, none of that worked for natural language. It has so many facets and so many of them are really inscrutable. They're not even observable at the surface. There are qualitative aspects to it that you can't really, you know, carve out and put a number or a name to Yeah. And so when it gets that fuzzy and subjective, how do you carve it out into something that matches a human intersect of interest? And that's where machine learning came in. We figured here was a technology that had an ability to carve out a really complicated function that we could barely understand. And it did that really well by understanding patterns. Even back then in those sort of nascent days, we didn't have the kind of horsepower that some of these big companies now that run large language models are doing. Right. And so we were ahead of the game for that reason. We started there and we came along a long way. We came along on two fronts. One is that first intersect where somebody is searching at Google and they want to find the right essay. How do you present to Google the right formats? What do you present to Google? I see. And so that involves a huge amount of natural language understanding. Mm -hmm. How do you cut up your content so that you show the right previews to Google? I see. Or you show, you know, title it correctly.
0: So it's like SEO in service of learning how to write hundred percent, you took the mm. words out of my mouth. So, mm. so
1: you have to get the people to show up first and that's the SEO component. Yeah. And it's very, what we call long tail SEO because the intent is so highly specific and that makes it really complicated as a problem to solve because you do want to match that intent very carefully. But once they land again, you have to show them affiliated concepts, as I said. And yeah. that's, again, involves a deep level of understanding of what's in that document. Now, you can do this easily if you're talking about hundreds of documents or even thousands. Mm. But when you're talking about millions of them, now you have a problem that's outside of human scale. Mm-hmm. And anything that's outside of human scale begs for a technological solution. Yeah, so. so That's how we got ahead of it. And then when Chad GPT came out and took over the world, It it was a surprise that it came out that fast, but large language models had been developing off to one side for quite some time. So it was not a technological surprise as much as the fact that it it set the world's imagination on fire, so to speak. And, And so it required an immediate response. And having been in this place for six years, we very quickly moved and added it to our arsenals and responded and we have, for example, we just launched an AI plagiarism detector. Mm -hmm. called identify on Bartleby.com. And that's now a tool we've provided for free to educators Mm -hmm. so that they can check their student essays. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned Bartleby. Bartleby Write is a product that you're developing that is already out there. And some questions immediately come to mind around how do you integrate it? And that's where you immediately have been able to snap into this New technology. I'd love to hear more about that side of things. What is Bartleby Wright and how are you thinking about tapping into this new wave of technology that is beginning to emerge? So,
1: under Bartleby Wright, there's this interestingly named platform called Righty McWright Face, which uh, we have. We stole that name from a contest in the UK, if you remember, but Bodie McWright Of course. But Writing My Great Face is a platform with a set of expanding capabilities. First is all of the sort of regular stuff, like grammar. Did you write this sentence reasonably well? And so on. But really, the emergent concepts that come out of AI are we can start looking at abstract concepts. Is the intent of this essay to be argumentative or to be you know, analytical and then carve that? gross intent up into final level intents. Mm. And we can say, well, a typical essay of this nature and this nature being something topical. And you can understand that now with NLU. Mm. But typically an essay on, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Gettysburg speech or something like that will involve these five intents. And typically they're in this sequence. Now you're getting one level above mm. and getting more and more abstract. And then you can go from there and say, well, this intent is typically answered by asking the following questions. Once I get that whole space of it, I can then measure coverage. How well are you doing? Hmm. Can I push you slowly and incrementally now through a language journey where we start to suggest things in time where you ask a question, we answer it just enough for you to keep that creative intent in you alive Hmm. and perhaps, you know, burn it a little brighter. And remove all the structural impedance that you typically get in the writing hub mm. and walk you through your own creative journey a little more easily. And that's, you know, essentially that's what technology is. It just allows you to do what you want to do a little more easily.
0: Yeah. I really like the idea, a few things you put out there so far that I like. One is the idea of a learning funnel where I've heard of conversion funnels but I haven't really heard about learning funnels. And I've always thought that a lot of the techniques that are used on the marketing side for optimization could in fact be used on the learning side. So that was an interesting turn of phrase. But then the related point I think is how do you draw someone in and continue to engage them in a dialogue, in an exchange of information? I've been really struck by how these new Generative models are chat-based, where I give you something, you give me something back. I've likened it to improv, where you know a lot of yes ends until you call the AI out on being wrong and confident about what it was talking about. Right. But as someone who's been working in that space specifically, I would imagine writing help will be vastly improved by the amount of new generative content that is readily available.
1: Yes and no. There are two issues there. One is, let's go on to the yes side. We certainly can look at a chat-based or semi-chat-based interface and allow you to discover your own boundaries, so to speak, or, you know, dive deeper into spaces that the tool reveals to you and then that inspires you a bit and you jump into the creative side of that. So that's that's the asset. Maybe you create really good content. The other side of that is there is this problem with ChatGPT creating a lot of content. I read an article or, or a tweet or something a few well, weeks ago that pointed out that yes, ChatGPT 3, ChatGPT 4 will be trained on human essays. What's ChatGPT 6 going to look like mm-hmm. as we start Creating more and more of these machine generated essays. what are you going to train on? it does it get like a circular process? Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think we're on the right track. We're trying to spark the human creativity and not encourage this sort of greenfield open space notion of a jackpot where you just tell it uh, what to do that's it's highly sensitive to the prompt you give it. Yes you are at your you know at the mercy of that thing and it guides you more than you are guiding it. Right. So like any product, any good product, I think you take elements of what works, discard the things that don't work and assemble it into a highly directed intent. And that's what a writing tool is now. It's not just a grammar checker and a this and a that. It's that learning funnel. I can take you at the top, I can give you just a little bit and I can slowly deepen your journey by giving you all sorts of things. Uh, one of the things we just added, and by the way, the things I'm describing are not out yet. It's almost there. It's just yeah. not in productized format. Yeah. And so we've been working on them for a very long time. And so we had what I just described to you, this whole intent sequencing and the coverage analysis and all of that. We just need to bring it out there right. and put it into Bartleby right. We do need to go down that journey. Yeah. We do need to use the tool. We need to discard elements of the chatting experience, the open chatting experience that mm-hmm. do not fit this mission mm-hmm. of teaching somebody to write or allowing them to write without like i said all the structural impediments and yeah. and then maybe that works a lot better than just saying here's a window now type whatever you want and figure out how to write
0: yeah that makes sense it does need to be more structured than and maybe more formal at times than the current model of chatting with chatgpt or bard or sydney i think is microsoft's how are you thinking about personifying the voice the idea now that Chat GPT kind of has a personality. Maybe we're just pretending to notice that there is a personality on the other side, but as humans, we are starting to engage almost in a collegial way with some of these new chat applications that are emerging, similar to Siri or Cortana. How are you thinking about that in terms of the emotional design and the way in which the product experience interacts with folks who are getting used to? Almost establishing a relationship with their software.
1: Yeah, for now, I think we are keeping away from that and staying in the learning journey as it is traditionally specified. We want to leave you with your own emotions and not interfere with that. Yeah. Because I think that is the source of creativity is you and not the machine. And it shouldn't be. It's almost a passive, you know, helper. It's your own voice that you want to discover, Mm. not the machines. Yeah, And we're gonna try and do as much as we possibly can not to interfere with that voice. But just to harken back to a little bit of what I was saying earlier, the yeah. thing that I described earlier now produces a human generated document at higher quality as opposed to what ChatGPT would have produced. It has a voice, it has a human voice. Yes, it was aided by technology and that's the proper place for technology is to aid humans. But it was essentially a human-generated piece of text. Yeah, And I think there's an interesting paradox in this, which is as more AI proliferates out there, the human content becomes infinitely more valuable. Not the least because it's rarer now, but also because it has that voice. It has that creative voice that's going to be rapidly disappearing, I fear, from other writing endeavors. Yeah. And so we want to nurture that. We want to nurture that voice. We want to teach that voice, grow it. And this paradox is we want to use AI to do that. Sure. Yeah.
0: It's really interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking back to the new skill that everyone's talking about, which is prompt crafting. Prompt Prompt engineering. Prompt engineering. Exactly. And how, in that case, the prompt is for the AI But a lot of what you're describing in writing help is more like prompt engineering for the human writer or the learner, where there are certain questions or stimuli or prompts that ideally will facilitate a better written product from that individual. It was interesting for me to just think about how, in some ways, you're designing the prompts for the humans to make them better. That's right,
1: That's a very interesting way to look at it. I
0: agree. So shifting gears a little bit, where do you see things headed with this stuff? I know it's kind of early, but we are a trend spotting show. Folks are still getting their legs under them. At the same time, it does seem like we're rolling out versions of ChatGPT faster than numbers of razors on your razor blades. ChatGPT4 mm-hmm. is out. And more are on the way. It's difficult, I think, to get your bearings. But as someone who maybe is a little bit out ahead of this, any sense of what you see on the near or further horizon? And where do you see some of the new technology going? And also the market itself, what do you think people are going to, are they going to start looking for different things because they're
1: expecting something like chat GPT on the other side? Sure. I'll take a crack. And then as you said, it's an emerging thing. And our observations are likely to be about 50% off (laughs) at this stage. But there are some early sort of trends. I think, first of all, it helps to contextualize what's going on. It's a large language model. It's not a smart thing. It's it's just a giant mess of data.
0: I've likened Uh, it to a magic eight ball. I don't know what you think about that. But to me, I feel like it's a very... High tech version of you shake the eight ball and it gives you one <laughs> of ten
1: answers. You know. Yeah, it's, it is. So they've, they've called it a stochastic parrot. Mm-hmm. It just it it's fairly random, but settles on a human like pattern. And what it spits out is almost magical. In some cases, even some of us don't understand what it's doing and why. How does it rhyme, for example? Surely it has to understand what rhyming is in order to do that. Or I spotted a recent example where somebody told it to write an abecedarian format, mm-hmm. and it actually did that. Now, how does a stochastic parrot do that? Yeah. So it's a mystery to some of us <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to rely on the underlying technical intuition that, yeah, that's all it's doing. The fact that it's able to mimic us so well is simply a function of how much data we've fed it and how much yeah. we've trained it. So it's a mirror. It's a very, very good mirror. It's a magic egg ball to your analogy.
0: Although to your credits, stochastic Parrot is a wonderful band name. So I'm already <laughs> thinking about what kind of music we might play, but, <laughs> but yeah. Any thoughts on how this may evolve how humans interact? Because it does feel like if the eyeballs are captured by this new mode of interaction, just like they're already trained on Google search. If there becomes a new mode of interacting, which is a little more question and answer prompts and response, do you anticipate that changing customer expectations around learning products or educational experiences?
1: Oh, absolutely. Like I said uh, a while ago, I think it set the world's imagination on fire. Every garage startup is now heavily engaged in AI. And that wasn't even true four months ago. It's a huge change in the product space. I was just trying to narrow it down to something I could put my mind around, which is it's a large language model, GPT 3 yeah. 4, yeah. 5, whatever. Yeah. This is all they're doing from a technical space. From a technical perspective, it's just an ever-growing, ever-more capable Magic 8-Ball. But it is, it's is—it's a hugely impressive piece of technology. And it's opened the door to things like what you just said, which is why search when you can just find this thing? right? And it's a much more natural way of interacting with a piece of software. So why wouldn't we do that? And I think it's going to be inserted into as many products as we can to allow those products to become more and more capable. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, like we're doing, they will do that in the service of humankind and not just replacing a human capability, but augmenting it. Yeah. The good news is I don't think we're there in terms of fully replacing. I think we are well and firmly there now in terms of hugely augmenting you know, the human capability. Yeah, uh, A friend of mine had said, an architect had sent me a video on how people are using it in the field of architecture. And this was, it was fantastic. They had a bunch of architects competing with a piece of AI on creating, you know, I think the challenge was create this hugely compelling architecture in this wooded space that was stunning, produce a stunning building. And so they involved involved Journey, which of course came up with some really cool looking stuff. Yeah, And beat the architects, hands down. But that was not the full story. What it comes up with is not affiliated with anything that humans actually want to live in. It just looks good. Yeah. And so now what happens is you get this genesis of an idea that is way better than what you could have come up with. It happens 10 times at 10 times the speed. But then you can use that as a starting point to discover your own creativity in that space. Fashion it, recreate it for human use. And it becomes this wonderful thing that you perhaps couldn't have done before. It's, you know, it's exactly what technology should be doing, it should be moving us forward in the human journey. And I think if we view it in the right frame of mind, and I mean, it's natural to fear this kind of thing. Sure. But I think there is another way to look at it, which is, it's just another piece of technology that is, it's yes, it's fantastic, but it needs to be redeployed in models that serve us in this capacity, where it does things. It helps us do things we couldn't have done before, which is basically the story of technology, isn't it? Yeah, and
0: it also, for the humans in the equation, a topic that comes up a lot on this podcast is the future of work and what types of jobs are gonna be on the other side, what professional competencies are gonna be most relevant, You know, and how do we make sure people learn them and stay ahead of emerging skills gaps. This to me is very much that where the skills disruption is accelerating a lot faster. Doesn't mean we won't need humans, but the humans we need are going to need to have a more flexible, adaptive mindset. And they're also going to need to be able to work with technology in partnership, understanding that there's a point at which the pure human play is going to lose to the augmented with AI play. So start to ramp up on the future model of an employee and have some vision in that space. Otherwise you could be
1: left out. Yeah, I think it moves the starting point to put it succinctly. You were starting way back, you know, the calculator analogy comes to mind. So you used to have to pull up a piece of paper and then, you know, multiply two four-digit numbers and you don't have to do that anymore. The starting line is moved. Yes. And so that's what this does. So it moves you way further out and then you start from there. So if you are, for example, a programmer who does not know how to use gpt to create just basic repetitive coding templates as yeah. your starting point, yeah. you're going to be far behind the person who does. So it changes the game. It changes everything all the way back to education, where we have to teach people how to do this now and focus on Maybe in education, we focus more on the conceptual spaces and then leave the rest to the tools. So it it changes a lot of things, even at its current nascent stage. And if the world is going to be producing now products with this basic capacity in pretty much every product, yeah, yeah, the the entire starting line just moved. To your point, it doesn't change the need for humans. It just changes how they, what they produce, how they produce and what speed they produce, which is an old story. That's what tech does. And this is no different from that. The one place where it goes a little, yeah. you know, asymptotic is what happens next when it gets smart. And that's a much larger conversation best left to sociologists and economists and things like that, because we we identify so much with work and the product of work and the economic systems are so calibrated to that. but. Yeah. That's a much larger conversation. The good news is I don't think we're anywhere near that. These parrots are not getting (laughs) that smart anytime soon.
0: Yeah, but we are entering into a symbiosis that probably will continue for the foreseeable future, just like we all are carrying our smartphones around until the implants are ready. I don't know what comes next, but there's not much going back in terms of this relationship with technology. And that is already impacting how we think about writing and also how we think about assessing writing. And it's becoming increasingly at risk that some of the assumptions around everyone will learn how to write, everyone will go through this sort of traditional curriculum around writing, that's being questioned a lot more in light of the the emergence of this new technology. We're getting closer to time, but since you're cooking, I wanted to hear any thoughts you might have around the future of writing, the future of teaching writing, in light of everything we've been discussing
1: okay very quickly then i think it's again how you frame things and it could be argued that instructional design is in need of a review and perhaps the instructional design of your doesn't match our needs of today especially in an accelerating state like the one you've just described so why should it be that way why should we be handing out essays for review why why don't we have for example if i can turn writing into a tool That's, for lack of a better word, proctoring you in your writing experience. If I can log what you're doing, as a faculty member, you can submit the writing assignments through my, you know, through this writing tool. And then some piece of technology can curate all that for you and parcel it out to the student in a manner that fits your new model of instruction design. Do we have an end-to-end solution that now matches the technology that just showed up at our doorstep? Perfectly. And so we should be thinking in those ways now. The technology, sure, it's forcing new patterns of thinking. But I would argue that is as it should be. That's what the human journey has always been about. It's used technology to advance our cause. It's been doing that for 2,000 years. This is no different.
0: Yeah. Any advice for folks who are listening? We might have some educators listening or folks in other parts of organizations, leadership, or just folks who care about the future of learning. Any advice, any recommendations to folks out
1: there? I would not presume to advise an educator on education. It's a complex, multifaceted topic, and it's really hard. I'm a technologist, and I would say I'm a technologist in education. And then the way I view it may be helpful for you as you seek to reframe your world in light of the inescapable technology that just showed up. You you can't leave it and move on. That's not going to happen. So you're going to have to find a way to live with it. And I would suggest a reframing and a rearticulation of the problem. The problem is teaching. It's always been teaching. It's always been about how do you get a student to learn. And technology has so far been only a tool in the service of any of these kinds of endeavors. And I think we continue to look at it like that. And the moment you shift your perspective into viewing things in that way, then you start to embrace certain things, including just pure online learning. Online learning, sometimes people look askance at it and you know, it's not, it doesn't fit nicely, the linear model of instruction that's out there. But you have to ask yourself, in a world where knowledge is expanding and doubling and tripling every few years, is that the right model or is there a place in it for technology to assist you? Mm-hmm. And by assist, I mean, do not change the linear model, but augment it with learning experiences you would make use of services like ours that allow you to look at the micro problem of learning where I can just slowly move a student from point A to point B, and then maybe he or she is ready to go back into your class with a new starting point, more readily able to receive that next piece of instruction you're going to give them. So that's yeah. the new frame, I think. And that's, mm-hmm. how, that's how technology and online and education marry up into something that is, is bigger than it used to be. Yeah.
0: And real quick, any thoughts on the other parts of Web3, the blockchain or AR, VR?
1: Yeah, the blockchain is interesting. It's been around. It's a zero trust model and I think it'll have a place. I don't know where it goes. Cryptocurrency is certainly a nice application. Is there a model for distributed trust out there? I suspect so. Learning records,
0: Sue. Uh, here, Could you yeah, see yeah. your learning <laughs> records on the blockchain?
1: Perhaps. The blockchain is useful when you decentralize. And in, in certifications, are you decentralizing? I don't know, maybe you're re-centralizing. So is that is the blockchain an applicable technology? Perhaps not, because you do need to know who's giving you the certificate, even yeah. the micro-certificate. Yeah. But in VR, it's always been emerging and it's always exciting. For the last 20 years, we've been saying, wow, look at this thing. And, yeah. and we've never quite found a place for it, I suspect because it's hard to create that content. Mm. It's expensive to create that content. I think the intersection of AI and at least AR, if not VR, I think is going to create a hugely immersive space, a contextually relevant immersive space Mm. where you can slice and dice content into meaningful experiences that you can push a student into for that. I'm a strong believer, as you can tell, in this micro learning moment. Yeah. And I think if we can... Slice and dice that into these micro learning moments and provide immersive experiences and then label things automatically in the AR space and do all of that. You have this huge learning engine, huge piece of collated information that you can start to share with your students. And that excites me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. We're talking to Sudhir Krishna Swamy. He's the CTO of Digital Student Solutions at Barnes & Noble Education. It's been a wonderful conversation, so Here We've certainly hit on a lot of topics. As we conclude, I always love to give guests just a time for some closing remarks as we send folks back on their merry way. Any concluding thoughts as we wrap up here?
1: Just reframe your thinking. It's a wonderful and exciting time and a very scary one. And I would put the scary aside and focus on the wonderful and exciting. And, you know, let's take humanity forward that one more step. That's what we do as technologists. Love to help you with that.
0: Thank you so much, Sudhir, for joining me on today's show. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure and a privilege. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, spread the good word, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.